Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam, pharmacists to care. Hello, this is Sue Jackson and I'm standing in for Kathy Kayla and my guest today is Dr. Shoshana Safa, specialist psychologist and our topic is depression and anxiety and apparently Ah, uh, sorry, psychiatrist. I said psychologist. I meant psychiatrist, specialist psychiatrist. And um, our topic today is depression and anxiety. And Mandy has just told us that it's actually Mental Health Week. So this fits in quite n- well. This this little saying: Out of all the people I miss right now, I miss myself the most. And I think this is very much one of your topics, uh, Shoshana. And um, Shoshana believes in the mind, body, soul, that, that that's the only way to practice psychiatry. She says, follow, find and follow the pattern that connects. Be the best that you can be. Lots of have lots of fun. Always take responsibility. Laugh as lo- often as possible and then some. And I must admit she laughs a lot. And do lots of yoga and live with passion. Well, I want to tell you that I have known Shoshana for quite a long time. We both live uh, around the uh, corner from each other. And she definitely lives with passion and with a lot of laughter. Welcome, Sean. Well, thank you, Sue. That's quite an introduction. <laughs> <laughs> and I won't tell your listeners what you admonished me um, before we put our microphones on, which was something like um, try and be normal <laughs> for the purposes of this interview. Well, you know what? I think we both know that there's no definition that actually fits normal. So try. Okay, Sean, as much as you can. Right? Well, correct, <laughs> because in the in the psychiatric Bible or manual, which is called the DSM-5, there is no definition of normal, mm. which is great. So we never really have to worry about that one. Absolutely. We only have to worry about the pathology. <laughs> and you know what? Someone once said to me, they said, how are you? I said, fine. And he pulled a, a, a strand of his hair out, and he said, this is fine. And I thought, well, once again, there's kind of no definition of what fine is. Fine is different to each of us. So what I would like to discuss with you today is there is a stigma attached to depression, and especially among different cultures and races, and that's, that uh, depression is seen as a as a, a weakness or a personal failing, correct. yes, and mm. that they often be very quiet, are very quiet about it, because heaven forbid, uh, if you're looking for a spouse, a partner in any way, that they should know that you come from a background of depression. Now, you, what do you say about that? Well, you know, for years and years, I'm talking since I was on the board of the depression and anxiety group. This is. Sure, going back some 20 years, we've always worked, obviously, towards minimizing and losing this kind of stigma. Because at the end of the day, this is just, this is bias. I mean, this is a form of complete and utter bias. Who knows where it even comes from? It's mm. a, it's a, um, an abhorrence of, 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 of difference, maybe even. And, um, when you look at the World Health Organization statistic, which is that by the year 2020, and I remind you all, we are not that far away. Mm-hmm. They said 50% of the world's population is going to be clinically depressed. And these stats came out, sure, when I first started psychiatry. I'm talking 20 years ago plus. So may- maybe they've even gone up. And here we're sitting and saying there's a stigma against it. 
Now, it's very akin to what a lot of people say about other illnesses, that when someone's sitting with a broken leg in a wheelchair, people feel sorry for them. Mm-hmm. They, they, you know, the, the ethics of the sick patient start to dominate, which basically means the sick person has rights and responsibilities. He has a right to be ill. He has a right to take off work and be compensated. Um, his responsibility, however, is obviously to seek help and to be cured as quickly as he can so that he can become a productive member of society again. Um, but when people have a mental illness, nobody can see it. Mm. There's no broken leg. There's no rash unless you have a side effect of medication. But <laughs> uh, the fact <laughs> of the matter is, <laughs> you know, you, 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 you don't look sick necessarily. No. And I think therein lies the stigma. And, you know, it's funny that you should say that because, you know, there's just been that, that mechanic who stole the passenger plane. And it's all over CNN at the moment and the news. And he was a mechanic who was working on planes, and he stole this plane. And they found the, I think it must have been the cockpit recording, and he said, you know, that he just is very sorry that if he's hurt anybody. The plane was empty. He did amazing feats with it, I might add. And um, he said he didn't mean to hurt anybody, but he just couldn't clear his thoughts. He, he couldn't live any longer. And uh, he he crashed eventually and and died. It was this week, the last last week, and I, and people were being interviewed who kn- know him, who worked with him, and they said, but we would never have said so. He's a warm, lovely guy to work with. You know, there was no sign of this, and I think that's part of the problem, isn't it? It's a hidden disease. Absolutely, absolutely. Unless one knows what's going on, as you say, inside the mind of people. Mm-hmm. And also, as you said, I don't, what did you say? I don't want to know my own mind. Or, mm-hmm. And I think, uh, you know, the, the converse is also that so many people are so focused in this driven, achievement-oriented society of ours to all conform to a certain path of what success means. That everybody wants to be somebody else, mm. but nobody wants to be themselves. Mm. And, and therein is a big problem. Because if we look at it, certainly from a Jewish point of view, everybody is born in this world with a self to be. A unique person. Correct. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Just tell me about your speciality. What, you know, what, uh, the specialist psychiatry, what did you specialize in? Well, basically what we all do, we do, we, we, we do general medicine, you become a doctor, and then you do a house job or an internship. Which Where is, were you? I was at Baraguanath Hospital, which is now called the Chris Harney Baraguanath Hospital in Soweto, which was an absolute privilege. Um, and, yeah, we, we, I worked in the trauma unit for six months, um, treated stab wounds and people whose hearts were literally beating out of their chests mm. and, and, and. And some people do a bit of obzingani, which I didn't, and you do six months of medicine. It's changed now. The kids are now doing two years um, internship and a further year of community service. But anyway, after all of the service, um, in order to specialize in a speciality in, in, in psychiatry in this point, it was another five years. And in those five years, you get rotated around the different psychiatric hospitals, and you start seeing that there's acute psychiatry, there's chronic psychiatry, there's long-term psychiatry, there's forensic psychiatry. So I know these are all just words, but I'll give you an example. Uh, forensic psychiatry, which was very close to my heart, I was trained extensively by Professor Merrill Forster at Sturkfontein, 
this is where the law and medicine or the law and psychiatry start to mix. And it's essentially to answer the question of when somebody committed a fraudulent or criminal act, are they to be forgiven or pardoned in the eyes of the law based on the fact that they were mentally ill? And that's the question that mm. we answer the courts. Um, places like Tara, which many people have heard of, um, are the kinds of places for chronic psychiatric disorders. When I say chronic, what I mean is perhaps disorders that have been around since childhood or adolescence and are, are recurrent and not easily treatable. So people may need a longer stay in order to switch medications, to see how they are, to have group therapy, etc. Probably the new clinics, the Crescents and the Akisos, which have recently been purchased by Netcare, are, are more modelled on that that kind of um, longer term stay. Mm. Where I work now in a general hospital, I focus more on what we call consultation liaison psychiatry and acute psychiatry. So what that means is consultation liaison would be somebody who comes into the clinic with a query or supposed medical condition. You may come in with your heart beating in your chest, thinking that you are having a heart attack. Mm. And you may rush to casualty, and they may call the cardiologist, which frequently happens, and you'll be in ICU with a cardiac monitor on. And after a day or two, the cardiologist may say, there's nothing wrong here. And that's when they call the psychiatrist to say, could this be something else? Mm. And the truth is, yes, it could. So often it is a panic attack. There we go. Mm. Come and work with me. <laughs> <laughs> the other problem is it can be a both and, which is often things we see with conditions like epileptic seizures. So sometimes people get people who are very distressed and who are unable to, to psychologically express it. They have a syndrome we call conversion disorder, and that's where psychological or stressful symptoms are actually unconsciously converted into uh, physical symptoms and manifested in the body. So somebody may come in completely lame in one leg, paralyzed. You can put a pin in them. They won't, they won't shriek. Mm-hmm. People can come and have seizures on the floor, and they're not faking it consciously. It's just happening. Mm-hmm. And why I was saying it becomes complicated is the commonest people that these fake seizures or pseudo-seizures occur in are actually epileptics also. So Uh, it's really hard to tell the difference mm, between mm. the real one and the fake one. So there's a whole conglomeration of stuff. But, And perhaps that's where the, with psychiatry especially, that's why you you really do need that medical background. Absolutely. So a big, I would call... Myself, maybe a specialist, p- perhaps in organic psychiatry. Mm-hmm. Um, not only in that, but the fact that we see so many cases, um, for example, um, of endocrinology. You've got to know what's going on in the hormonal system mm-hmm. to see how many conditions, like a thyroid condition, like iron deficiency, simple conditions mm-hmm. that GPC see every day, can either mimic or even add to, let's put it that way, become a a factor. And often it could be medically from the medicines, like in mm. with the, with cardiology, with di- diabetes, with um, 
um, higher cholesterol, you know, with the cholesterol medications. Well, this is another thing. So there's a whole conglomeration um, or, or a system of psychopharmacology or neuropsychopharmacology, which is all the medications used by us, but also all the medications used by other doctors, which in themselves have a side effect of depression. Mm. And everybody knows about teenage acne. They are put on. Roaccutane. Uh, yeah. And Roaccutane, besides can, uh, being very damaging to the liver in certain cases, can be one of a potent cause of depression. Is that so? Oh, yes. Good and heavens. give you another silly example. Everybody knows that um, an inhalant, okay, that to open the chest mm-hmm. when one has asthma or feels short of breath, those have what we call beta stimulants in. They open the chest, but they cause anxiety. Which is why, yes, but which is why beta blockers Mm. calm people down. Mm. People say, I'll have a beta blocker before my exam. My palms are sweaty. So there are a lot of different, so that's why we get taught part of what we do is when we are choosing to use a medication to treat depression or anxiety, what we should be doing and the judicious way to do it is to then choose something which aids and abets the rest of the patient's mm. condition. So if, mm. if someone's got a high blood pressure, for example, I'll choose an antidepressant, uh, a depressant, which maybe has a side effect of lowering the blood pressure compared to something that makes it worse, mm. for mm. example. And these are things that go on in our thought processes every single day when choosing medication. And I think these are so often overlooked. You know, I once went on to St. John's Wart mm. thinking that was going to help. You know, that it actually drove me into almost insanity. Mm. It obviously went through the, the same neurons were affected and, you know, the, the way it was working through in my brain. So we often think that something that we can buy over the counter is safe. But if you are prone to any sort of psychological uh, disturbance anywhere, it can trigger it. Well, here's the thing. And you know what the problem is with over-the-counter? As much as we have complaints about the cost of the ethical medicines, the fact is what most people don't realize is how many hours and hours have gone into the actual research and production. So what happens, I'll give you an example. If a person purchases a box of Prozac, which everybody knows Prozac. It's one of the first serotonin medications to come on the market in the early 80s. It came from Eli Lilly, not that I'm marketing them. (laughs) In one capsule of Prozac is 20 milligrams fluoxetine. I can't remember the preservative, hydro, whatever, chloride. But the point is you know that that's what you're getting. When you buy St. John's Wort, I'm sure there is some St. John's Wort herb there. I've actually grown it in my garden, but... How much is there? What product? Has it expired? Mm -hmm. Hasn't it? Are there any sort of ticks and balances? Is there any observation of the process? What gelatine capsule is surrounding? We don't know. Mm -hmm. And that's the bottom line. They actually did a study, sure, about 15 years ago when melatonin was quite the big thing on the market for jet lag. And they sold it at all the health shops. And a professor of mine went and got a whole sample to do a study. And it was very interesting because certain of the capsules had melatonin, uh, three milligrams, some had zero, some had 0.8. It was completely unregulated. Mm. And I think, I think there's the problem. Mm. That's A. B, as you said, is that things in, in and of themselves may be completely safe, but may not be 
depending on what you are on already. Mm. And I just want to make this point because I think a lot of my patients don't get this. In this country, we've got a regulation where we can write a script with repeats for six months. After six months, you've got to go to a doctor and get the, the script rewritten. Okay. I have a rule, though, in my practice. After a year, if somebody phones in and doesn't want to be clinically seen and they want a script, I refuse. And I'll tell you why. I don't know whether in that year, unless I sit down and speak to them, have they had a heart attack? Are they now off their blood pressure medications? Are they on something else? Did something happen? Did they break a leg? Did they have Mm -hmm. a stroke? Because my medication may alter slightly depending on what happened in the past year. And a lot of people get quite, you know, vitriolic and, and, you know, why do do I have to come in? It's ridiculous. You know, it's a half an hour conversation. They don't understand that these are are really important things that we are specifically looking for and documenting. Mm. So it's just an important... I think that's so important because I do think that a a psychiatrist worthy of the name actually will say to you, if you're going to have an anesthetic, if you're going to go on to thyroid medication, if you're going to go on to diabetic medication, if you're going to go on to any antibiotic, let me know first... And I will tell you what you can take for pain pill after you've had, uh, if you're having an operation, whatever. You know, that it's, it's, it has to be closely monitored. And this is the point, you know, in our hospital at least, but I, you know, it would be nice if all doctors did it. You know, we, we are quite a close, tight team at Linksfield, mm. um, Netcare Linksfield Hospital. And what we often do is, is you know, we liaise between each other. So the cardiologist will say, please see the patient. I will say to the cardiologist, my thoughts are to put the patient on this and this medication for these reasons. Are you okay with it? And then we're all on the same page, and the patient actually gets the best Mm. care. What a good idea. It's it's really the way to go. It really is. I'm talking to Dr. Shoshana Saffer, and she's a specialist psychiatrist at the Linksfield Hospital. And our topic is depression and anxiety. If you would like to SMS us, please do so on 34519. Now, you know, I read something the other day that said, and I wanted to actually discuss this with you. In the United States, it said that midlife depression seems to peak in 40 for women, and 50 for men, 50 years old for men. And and we've just got a break for an ad break, and then we'll go back to it. Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Hello, this is Sue Jackson. I'm standing in for Kathy Kayla. My guest today is Dr. Shoshana Saffer, specialist psychiatrist, and our topic is depression and anxiety. And you can SMS us at 34519. Now, I was mentioning to you how in the United States they were talking about midlife depression, and they said it peaks in the 40s for women and in the 50s for men, and but it seems to start clearing towards the end of the 50s when people start to value their, their strengths, what they, their, their um, experience of life, what they've actually found that has given them strength, and looking more at their purpose. Now, that's such an interesting stat when you look at it holistically in terms of of maybe mind, body, and spirit, because mm. the way I would instantly look at this kind of stat would be like this. You know, a woman in her 40s, her children are growing up, they're probably leaving school, and she's starting to have the so-called empty nest syndrome, or she's, you know, it's, it's starting to happen. 
Towards the end of her 40s, she's going to start negotiating menopause. So you're getting hormonal changes. So already now we're talking about horm- uh, a, a medical internal uh, n- hormones are, 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 are akin to neurotransmitters. It's just that the neurotransmitter tracts are in the brain and the hormonal tracts are in the rest of the body. But it's the same thing. They're chemical messengers. So we program to have chemical messenger shifts throughout our lives. Um, we also have these external social occurrences, let them say, you know, let me say, which is, which are generally, um, de rigueur for, for one's particular social circle or social class. And then our bodies are getting older. And if you look at it, the male menopause is actually, is, it's a new term, the male menopause, but they do describe men who are starting to get things like possibly secondary diabetes, they're getting their bit of a beer boop, boop, boop a bit of a belly, um, uh, adipose tissue on the, you know, uh, distributed in a particular way, and high blood pressure. Mm. And they've actually shown that by giving men testosterone shots, they get thinner and fitter and they get a, a zest for life. So, you know, they've, they've, they've talked about the male menopause. So again, hormonal, natural processes of aging, and maybe not so natural, the pathology of having a sedentary lifestyle or whatever lifestyle one has. Mm-hmm. Um, so it would make sense, those sorts of statistics. But I like what you're saying, the other point, which is that people start when they start pushing later into their 60s possibly and maybe into their 70s, that it actually can resolve naturally based on their maybe – Maybe people don't have to always work so hard as they did. Maybe they have more time for reflection, for time with the family, for connections, for 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 doing charity work, for doing things like you doing now, which is getting involved in a in a cool radio show. I mean, it's not something you did in your youth. Mm-hmm. And I hope it's cool. Yeah, Sean. it's very cool. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and the bottom line is, though, is to start um, is when people do start appreciating themselves and maybe getting positive feedback, mm, mm. and maybe feeling a sense of of satisfaction, not a sense of yearning or a, a want, I need, but more like, ah, I've done, I can share, I can give. It's a very different feeling. Mm. You know, and you know, it's funny you should say that because I saw it particularly, I was in Israel earlier this year for five weeks, which was quite a long time. And I met many ex-South Africans and I found so many of them, uh, a lot of them were men, but very involved in community work. You know, they, they're retired and they're giving, they're finding another purpose and another meaning in their lives. Very vibrant, very vital, very involved in life. And actually, uh, it was, I, I interviewed quite a few of them. It was wonderful to see that. You know, it's interesting because Rabbi Tversky, Abraham Tversky yes. came out here some years ago. And I'll never forget, I, I actually had a patient sitting with me who was a drug addict. And um, I think I saw you there. It was at the addiction clinic yes, in Houghton. Correct. Yes. And I got a call from Dan Wolf, who, who, who runs Houghton House now. And, and, and he said, Rabbi Twersky speaking. And without further ado, I said to the patient, right, pay me for your session. Here's your session. You get to listen to Abraham Twersky. <laughs> and I put him in the car and took him over. And one of the things that's never left me was the way Abraham Tversky stood up and he said, you know what, I was invited here to talk and I had a carrot dangling and I'm being paid and I have a nice safari that they're going to take me on. 
And he said, but none of those reasons are the reason I'm really talking to you today and, and to the patients later. He said, every man needs a purpose. And it doesn't matter what your purpose is. If your purpose is to sweep the streets, if your purpose is to to be a driver, it, it doesn't matter as long as you have a purpose that you recognize and you wake up and you've got something to do and somewhere to go. Mm-hmm. And he said that is the mark of a, of, of a happy life. And, you know, uh, he actually said that he learned that at AA. When he was at AA, right. And, you know, when you say that, I often tell the story about the toilet cleaner at NASA, the American uh, uh, space Mm. station. And he was asked what he does. And he said, I help put man on the moon. Oh, wow. Isn't that wonderful? What a purpose. What a meaning in life. I knew you would like that. What about the sandwich generation? Because can you explain that a bit? Because that is also more or less like when you're 40, 50, your, your parents are becoming more needy and your children are also, they, they, they haven't left yet. So they might be a matric or they're at varsity, but they're still needing you and, and there's still a lot of demands. From home mm. on you, and here you are in the sandwich generation, not sure, you know, where you sort of fit in. It's quite an exhausting place to be. I think it's very exhausting. In fact, I was at a brunch yesterday where one of the women was saying, you know, she said she's missing doing the school runs because she's missing some kind of interactions and communications with her kids as well as with other mommies when she mm. used to take the kids to school. And now that they've grown up and drive themselves, she she's, she said she feels a, a loss. And we were just saying how when we are in the thick of things, so whether the sandwich is coming from above or below, the, the <laughs> fact of the matter is, is that we're feeling so pressured all the time. It almost becomes quite difficult to suck the joy mm. and the marrow out of each experience so while we're having it. And it's only afterwards when we're sort of lying on our hammocks and, uh, you know, watching You'll the apples fall, we start <laughs> thinking, gee, that was such an amazing thing. It was so nice to be a mom, but I, I kind of don't feel maybe I enjoyed it as much as I could have. And ah. I think... That's where this whole concept of mindfulness comes in. Absolutely. And the awareness that whatever we're doing and however stressful it feels at the time, and I'm not talking about pathological stress here, where maybe one does need a break, a clinic admission, a medication, but just the daily stress that we put on ourselves, the the concept of mindfulness, which is it's just moment by moment, Mm -hmm. non-judgmental, Observation. That's all that it is. And it's just, it, it actually becomes a habit. You know, you can bite your nails or you can like be mindful, like mm. choose your habit. It's <laughs> so true. Now, just for a moment, you know, I was reading, uh, what's his name? Styron, um, William. Uh, yes, William Styron mm. and on, uh, suicide, darkness. Dark nights of yeah, the, the, no, darkness revealed or dark. He also did a dark night of the soul. Yes. And mm. that also, the one other one who did that was, um, uh, oh, I can't remember, but also fantastic. But he was saying that, you know, sometimes that unbelievable darkness mm. is so encompassing that you cannot actually see beyond it. And, um, it seems to, Suck you deeper and deeper into it. So while you're saying it sucks your very marrow out of you, and you know, hopefully you can reclaim that marrow, 
often you can't, and that's when you very definitely do need help. Mm. And no matter whether you feel there's a stigma attached to it or not, in order to live, you you do need help. But a lot of people with bipolar, I mean, Kay Redfield Jamison, Jamison. Mm, I mean, her mm. books An are just... An unquiet mind. Absolutely. Great book. Her, all her books are exuberance, where she talks about her own battle with bipolar and how when she's in this creative mode, she is just so alive. And you're reading about her writing her thesis for, for her Harvard kind of PhD, mm-hmm. and then she talks about how she's lying in the bath and actually like slitting her body yes and lying in the in the parking at one stage she was dancing in the parking area when a, when a, a, a fellow psychiatrist said to her you know what are you doing and she said no she's just sort of celebrating the moon and stars you know and come and dance with me sort of thing and he he realized that while it sounded fantastic she was beginning to slip right so here's the concept that people need to understand is that there's a basic I won't call it a red line, but let's call it a basic baseline of how one is temperament-wise. You know, my father, who was a, a professor of neurology, well, he still is, he's just not at the university anymore, but he always used to say, based on his observation and certainly based on the psychological um, um, textbooks, etc., um, and the research that now came out, babies are born with a particular temperament. So what I'm saying is your whole life you've generally had a temperament from school. There's the shy girl, there's the naughty boy, there's the bouncy boy, there's the laughing girl, whatever it is. So it's important to keep in mind one's underlying or baseline temperament because the concepts of what we call depression and mania, which are changes in mood, actually come from an an alteration or a, a stepping off that baseline line. Okay. So that's the first thing because by the Bible, the DSM, we are only, <laughs> allowed, we only allowed to actually clinically diagnose depression if there is a change from previous mood and functioning. So if one was always um, shy and retiring and never left home And one is still shy and retiring And never left, left home There is no diagnosis mm. And you can't even call that person normal So, you know, it's just it's, This is just all a clinical kind of a game But the point is, I'm making a point When a person, like you were saying A person's laughing and acting strange In the parking lot To the point where their colleagues at work and the colleague doesn't need to be a psychiatrist. Colleagues at work recognize that this person's behavior is out of order to their usual. Mm, mm. And maybe it's associated with a bit of exuberance and a bit of euphoria and a bit of, um, you know, that kind of um, heightened um, joyful behavior or even irritability. We would then call that behavior hypomanic. Hypo meaning not quite manic. Mm. Now, hypomanic implies that the person, as you've described, can still go to work. She still drove there. She still danced in the parking lot. And I'm sure she still went in and did her job. Mm. But people noticed that she wasn't herself. Mm. And this is exactly what can happen the other way around. So one can fall below the so-called baseline line. And one can become not quite depressed or maybe not fulfill all the criteria for depression, but can certainly look like they are slipping up. Now, I get a lot of patients um, 
and I'm talking professional people. I can just, you know, recently a banker. Um, I get lawyers who who will come and say nobody knows how bad I am. Mm. Mm. I can see in, in in my session. I mean, it's how anxious they are. But they say that at work, they somehow manage to knape and hold it in. We call it putting on a mask. I was going to say mm. it's the putting on and the mask. Mm. And the interesting part of the putting on the mask phase of depression is the fact that they can. Almost, it's almost a, what's the word? Um, it's almost showing that they are, they, they not, I'm not saying that they're not that bad, but it's showing some kind of a positive coping skill. The fact that someone is able to. Mm. It's when the person is just completely not able to put foot in front of the other and the mask comes off. One must know how serious this is. Mm. It's not to say mm. it's not serious before, but it's, the fact that they're putting on a mask is still positive. You can still get in there relatively quickly and fix up. You know that um, Lord Byron said, um, I doubt sometimes whether a, a quiet and unagitated un, um, life would have suited me, yet sometimes I long for it. And how many creative people, mm. are, you know, Lord Tennyson, Vincent van Gogh, uh, Percy Shelley, poet, you know, they were all diagnosed bipolar. Well, Mozart. not really bipolar then. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, you look at uh, Churchill. I mean, look what he achieved, you know, and yet he, he often spoke about his black dog of mm, depression. Correct. And um, so what you're talking about is the madness with genius, that there's never, there's never a, a, a genius mind without a touch of madness mm. and vice versa. And, you know, just on simple terms, and this is something that anybody can understand, I do believe, and this is what is going to happen probably in the next generation, is that we are all a conglomeration of how we were made and wired. You know, a kettle's wired to be a kettle and a, a fridge is wired to be a fridge. And a pop-up toaster is <laughs> <laughs> um, supposed a, to pop up the toast. It's supposed to pop up the toast, correct. <laughs> so, so my point is, though, and this is easy, you know, people don't realize that people are different because of their neurotransmitters. And when I say that, I'm not trying to be reductionistic and... Uh, sound atheist and say, oh, well, you know, we just, you know, massive mo molecules and atoms. I believe that this is all by design. But because we are human, of course we're going to have to have some kind of human chemical biological material in which we were, we were created. Mm -hmm. So my point is, is that if you look at people, just people randomly in jobs, you may find some high-flying CEO types. And you may say, gee, look at this guy, you know, um, he's, he seems to be able to sleep four hours a night and he flies all over the world making deals and he's sharp thinking and quick-witted, isn't he? And it's amazing. And, and it's true. Those type of people Definitely do very well in life mm. in a certain way. It mm. depends how you measure success. I do, with any power comes a lot of responsibility, mm. which I don't know if I would like, but they become powerful people. Obviously, then their next choice is how do you use your power? Mm. But let's go back to their state. They don't need a lot of sleep. I need at least eight to nine hours mm. a night. 
And Churchill used to take short naps, and that was enough for him. Exactly. So if, can you imagine you've got eight, uh, five hours more in a day than the next person? Of course mm. you can do more. Mm. There are other people who are just generally a little bit tired, or, or their minds don't work so, so fast, but they're very loyal, and they plod along, and when they're 70 or whatever the retirement age is, they get their gold watch and go home. And, you know, sometimes they are actually labelled as being a bit depressed because they are a bit, maybe lackadaisical is the wrong word, or lethargic also is not really uh, well, the right word, but they're, they're not, not driven. enthusiastic. They're not driven. Mm. So drivenness is, you know, this, it's normal. However, if a person is overdriven, we call it mania. Mm. And so, look at the lacks in their life. So the, these are all the the little, um, the, you know, the normal versus slipping into what we call pathology. Mm, mm, okay, mm. so so this is it's quite an interesting thing the way we are made. So would you look at um, if do you ever go back and look at intergenerational um, problems within a family? Do you do you look at is that one of the criteria that you look at before you diagnose? What what your family history? Well, intergenerationally, um, certainly we look at a family history of disease. So, for example, just like I would be asking you if I was a, a general doctor, and I do anyway, um, you know, do you have a history of heart disease? Maybe we must check your, your cholesterol. Do you have a history of sugar? You know, mm. there's certain populations that have a much higher history of diabetes, and one must be very careful not to add diabetic-inducing antidepressants, for example. Um, so we also look at not not so much generational, but just family history of mental illness. Mm. Did your mother have a postnatal depression when she had you or your brothers? Um, do you have first cousins on mum's or dad's side who not only maybe had depression because maybe they weren't diagnosed as such, but... Um, is there anybody who you know maybe was a very bad gambler or maybe lost all his money or maybe was a drug addict or drank too much? Because all of these so-called vices, mm. instead of calling them vices, they are sort of co-occurrences or concomitants mm. of certain mood disorders, which is why hospitals like a Kiso clinic would have so-called DDUs, dual diagnosis units. We're just breaking for an advert. Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Dischem, pharmacists who care. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on Dischem Medical Monday, and I'm filling in for Kathy Kayla. And my guest today is Dr. Shana, uh, Safa, I call her Shoshana, and uh, she's a specialist psychiatrist. And we are actually talking about Getting a family history, do you know that Ernest Hemingway, who was a Nobel Prize winning author, his parents were manic depressive. His son and his granddaughter were also depressive and committed suicide, and he himself committed suicide. And he wrote that forward to arms and for whom the bell tolls, remember? Now, if you look at that history, I'm sure you know he would have got help today by today's standards. Do you agree? Look, absolutely. Um, Although some families will not admit it. Sure. You see, what's also quite interesting, especially when you talk about mood changes, often people who are, let's go back to the previous uh, CEO of company description, someone who's just got naturally a lot of energy and exuberance and works really hard, 
even if they become a little bit hypomanic, um, often don't seek treatment because they're fine. Mm. They're just sharper than usual and, in fact, work harder and everyone wants to be what they are on. And they're more creative. Correct. It's only when the mania comes and mm. maybe they are literally running down uh, the road naked or going to order 15 McLaren cars, which they <laughs> can't afford or can maybe. I don't know. Um, but but things that are really out of the usual, people start noticing mm. this, is, this is strange. Whereas when someone becomes a bit depressed, they know all about it. It ain't fun to be depressed or anxious mm. because even just doing the shopping can be a nightmare. I mean, I, I remember a lady who said she walked into a bakery just to buy bread for her family. And as she as she looked at the, the various loaves of bread, the rye, the white, the brown, she started crying. Mm. She couldn't make a decision. Mm. Just to make another point, indecision is a very important other point that when someone is ill, you cannot a expect them to make a decision and b you should forbid it mm -hmm. during a mood episode mm -hmm. because it, it's just not possible to make an informed decision when the with the brain neurotransmitters are, are not functioning properly absolutely and i think it's very important you know what you say about that woman going shopping because someone said to me the other day that uh, she was feeling incredibly sad. Now, it was not actual sadness. She had lost her, her husband a few years ago and had got on with her life pretty quickly. But the depression had come in, definitely. But so, so there's a very big difference between feeling sad and a depressive episode which lasts so much longer. You know, we can often wake up and feel sad for that day and get on with our lives, you know, so so it's a sad day. Sure, sure. So, and it, what's interesting, and people don't get this, is two things. I just wanted to mention, you mentioned some. Uh, her husband passed away. That Just a very brief thing just to say, there is something called a grief reaction, mm. which, funnily enough, in the DSM is described as able to last up to one year. So you're allowed to be or, or have symptoms, which may be looked at as, as depressive, but after a year, and it's so interesting that it really does parallel the the, the Jewish year of um, mourning. Of, of mourning. Um, but they say in in general, you know, it's 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 appropriate. It's socially appropriate. It's the norm to possibly display these symptoms for a year. If, however, those symptoms are there after a year post the death of the loved one, it's then rega regarded as clinical depression. Okay, so there's mm. often a time period to when states are called certain names. I'm mm. just mentioning that. At the same time, you, you, you use the word sad. Now, sad is a feeling word. We all learn it at school. Funnily enough, in my experience, I often find that my, my more depressed patients, they don't complain of being sad. It's, it's almost like they've lost the capacity to feel. And there's a word we use. It's called alexithymic, which is out of touch with recognition of one's own feeling. Base. Mm. Okay, it's mm. a strange word, but it's it's strange. So, so it's almost like switching off to feelings. It's switching off. So I would use the word, and this is what a lot of people say. They say it's apathy. Mm. It's a lack of interest mm. or pleasure. It's anhedonia. In fact, Stephen Stahl, S-T-A-H-L, he's one of our gurus. Um, he's he's one of the Cambridge Harvard guys, and he writes extensively on uh, uh, neurotransmitters and, and neuropharmacology. Um, Pharmacology. Mm. 
he's got a scale in one of his books and it's great because he says, what is depression? And he looks at two distinct things. He says loss of a positive affect. So loss of joy, loss of pleasure, loss of interest, loss of verve, loss of enthusiasm, loss of sharpness, loss of excitement. And then he looks at the addition of negative factors. So it might be someone who's just more irritable, who is explosive, who mm. loses their temper, um, who actually starts feeling hopeless, who doesn't see the world as a valuable place, who maybe, I mean, one of the big symptoms is losing God. Mm-hmm. You know, it's strange that you should say apathy because I was just thinking as you were saying what they lose. They lose empathy too because empathy is also something to feel. You know, you're feeling another person's pain or you're recognizing it. Mm-hmm. So apathy and empathy, you know, it's uh, it's kind of almost the reverse. It's very interesting actually. It's a very good but, point. You know, uh, you also say sad. So just to go back to that mm-hmm. for a moment, there's also that um, – um, seasonal adjustment disorder, which is also the same. Seasonal af- affective disorder. Affective. Affect, okay. uh, just so you understand the words for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Affect is a term we use for observable mood. Okay. So I would say Sue's affect today. Well, you're looking quite sparkly and mildly interested and your eyes are shiny mildly and you're smiling. Interested. I'm and very <laughs> interested. <laughs> yes, but your affect. So an affect is somebody's observable mood, mm. whereas a mood is a subjective thing. So somebody might be sitting there smiling on the bench waiting and I may say, well, his affect is pleasant and Contained, but he may say, oh, you don't know what I'm going through. I'm sitting planning my suicide. I've just got the smile on my face because I don't want anyone to know because this time I'm doing it for definite, for example. Mm, mm. And that's another thing. A lot of patients come in and say, doctor, I am suicidal. And, you know, it's one of the worst things you can hear, but it's actually a very common thing in our practices. And I've made it my habit to ask, shockingly enough to the patient, what do you mean? And they say, but I'm suicidal. I said, but what does that mean? What exactly? Let's get down to the nutty, ditty, gritty and the nuts and bolts. What do you mean I am suicidal? Does it mean, does it mean you want to be dead? Like, like now? In an hour? Does it mean you're thinking about being dead? Does it mean you're ready to go and actually actively jump out a window? Throw yourself under a bus? What, what does it mean? And you know what's so funny? shouldn't use the word funny and suicidal in the same broadcast, but anyway, um, what, what a lot of people say is, is that they just want the world to stop for a while. Mm. They just want a pause button. They just want to maybe just be in a coma, some of them say. And I sort of get it. The old way of treating, which is actually banned now, but when I hear about what went on in, in decades gone by, many people were actually admitted to hospital for so-called sleep therapy. And they were hooked up to a drip and they were just given vast quantities of some sort of soporific substance. And two or three weeks later, they were discharged. The problem was that those substances had, had merely paused the problem. Mm-hmm. They hadn't actually maybe distinguished the different types of depression. And then, obviously, different types of depression are medicated. And when I say me- medicated, let, let me rather say um, managed differently because management of depression can include 
uh, medication, psychopharmacology, and even there, as I've said, there's very different uh, medications that one would choose depending on all the other circumstances in the patient's life, which is why psychiatry is such a, a holistic profession. Mm. You know, what people don't understand is that anybody can go and get a blood pressure tablet and and you can take it. And your blood pressure at day five will drop between such and such milligrams of mercury. Finished. It doesn't work that way in psychiatry. There are different neurotransmitter tracts. There are different ways of looking at things. And besides the medication side, there are also hormones that we use. I mean, for example, estrogen is an antidepressant. Mm -hmm. Estrogen is like Prozac. That's another reason why so many women who are postmenopausal and maybe don't take the, the, or need it and don't take uh, hormone replacements may come with symptoms of depression. I'm just giving. What about vitamin B12? So vitamin B12 is something that's another, uh, um, uh, my point is not only asking a history, we always, well, I always do blood tests because, as you've said, vitamin B12 mm, deficiency in general can make one very anxious but also can give one a lack of enthusiasm. You've always heard of people who've had a B12 shot and suddenly their mojo's back. Mm, mm. Vitamins, minerals, certain medications one's on, hormones, um, all of these things have merit in the overall holistic treatment. So for you, when you talk about holistic treatment, apart from the medication, and and uh, and you also uh, you you also do a lot of narrative mm. uh, psychiatry, don't you? I do. Uh, which is this, the listening to the the uh, patient's story, which is just so incredibly important. But what else would you bring in? So what I was saying is about certain different types of depression is that I think maybe in the old days they would have called it endogenous depression, mm. you know, um, certainly a depression where it, the belief is that that person has some kind of um, physically determined, excuse me, um, a brain tract Damage, so or would you call it a chemical imbalance? A chemical depression, perhaps. That, the, but the idea is there that this person is not going to get better unless they are on some kind of medication. Mm -hmm. And I'm not for a minute saying. I'm sure I'll get all the 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 opposite, you know, crowd saying, you know, but you can do this and you can do that, and they've got all sorts of other things to do, which is true, um, to a point. My point is, if we diagnose uh, something called a reactive depression. Man, reactive depression, it can be somebody maybe who retires mm. At the same time, I want to make an interesting point Is that all of us, I'm going back to my organic psychiatry and to my brain All, I mean, I'm a neurologist, but from the head up, I always say <laughs> I, I don't do the nerves below the neck but, but after the age of 55, all of us humans are going to start getting what we call brain rot our brain starts slowly aging, and it doesn't matter who you are. And it's it's a strange thing is how our brains actually involute or, or, or age or become thinner or shrink a bit is it sort of determines also how our mood's going to be in later life. So again, are we looking at it both ways? How much are we, are we holistically appreciating our lives? How much are we becoming happy because of our relationships? And 
this is all balanced according to what's going on physically. So true. Craig is just showing me that we've got a, a, a message come through. Bipolar. I was diagnosed and was put onto lithium in 1984. I was uh, institutionalized for 10 years of my life and and have been well since, what was that, 19 what? 1980 was my last episode. I like to call myself rehabilitated as I have not had an episode for many years. I am on 450 mil of lithium a day under under therapeutic level, but fine. Mm. Just thought I would let you know it's from Anonymous. Well, they're doing well, aren't they? Correct. So there's a very common story that one often will try certain medications and depending on the clinical picture, one might really think that the person would do well on a trial of lithium. And this is, again, where real people are not textbooks because... You know, you tell somebody I'm going to try lithium and they will fight you possibly. Mm. You know, people fight doctors on all sorts of things. And half of the issue is to actually, or half of the skill is not just, you know, writing the prescription and saying, well, do what you like. It's, it's about explaining. So you, you, you are actually practicing with the cooperation of your patient. They're the master of their destiny. We aren't. And I think it's also to look at the strength of the patient. I mean, you know, when I'm looking at this, this message and looking at 10 years of, of her life, which, you know, institutionalized, but how she's been clear, um, you know, and, and doing well on lithium, that takes a lot of courage and a lot of strength and well done. And thank you for sending in your message. Yeah, I applaud you. Craig is telling me we have to wrap up. I have Dr. Shoshana uh, Safa with me. And if you would like to find out anything about her, you can phone or visit her. You can go to Linksfield Clinic and get her number there. Um, is there anything you want to say just to to wrap up? You know, There's I, so much I, still to I say. I always say that uh, um, one day, one day when I when – I, <laughs> When I um, am guided in a different uh, purpose and I'm not so busy with clinical um, medicine anymore, I'm going to write a book, Good. which I look forward to. But my book's going to have a strange title. It's going to have a title um, that pertains to the physical and the metaphysical, meaning um, I see things on a lot of levels all the time. When patients come in, I'm not the one to quickly write a script. I'm seeing and intuiting many different levels that might have contributed to what I'm seeing in front of me. But my point is this. The title of the book will be something like, There's Always a Slipped Disc. (laughs) Or There's Always a Colon Problem. Because it doesn't matter what part of the body we're going to find. We have to manifest disease Mm. through our biology, through our mechanisms such as neurotransmitters, spine, blood. uh, Of course, that's physical disease. And how much more when we go into other realms? But I think that you're going to discuss that that you discuss on your Tuesday program. Dr. Uh, Safa will be coming onto my Tuesday program, hopefully in a few months time. Shana, is that okay? 
And I, I would like to just tell you that tomorrow, Dr. Rabbi Aktsan and I will be discussing past and present and how they actually interlock. We'll be on our, my Finding Human show at 10 o'clock tomorrow, Tuesday. Let me end with this quote. Health does not always come from medicine. Most of the time it comes from peace of mind, peace in the heart, and peace of the soul. It comes from laughter. And there's no health without mental health. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Shoshana. It's been lovely having you. Thank you, Craig. Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care.